From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, welcome to Bridging Philly. What does it take to be a true chess champion? There are many across the globe. Several happen to be women. We catch up with Philly's own Jennifer Shahadi, author of the book Chess Queens. And she's joined by a few young women who are chess queens in training to talk about their love of the game, which is dominated by men and the challenges that they face. I might be a young lady, but that does not mean anything. I could be dominant in this field, too, just like you. An historic landmark in Camden, New Jersey, was severely damaged recently due to a fire. Sharaday Howard talks with the head of a nonprofit who is determined to save it. The enemy tried to destroy this home, yet I rise and still I stand. That's all ahead on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. When you think of the game of chess, And the players of the game, do you automatically think of men, players like Magnus Carlsen, Gary Kasparov, Bobby Fischer? There is, in fact, a gender imbalance in top-level chess. And as of late last year, 40 female players, 40 female players have been awarded the title of Grandmaster. That is out of over 1,700 Now, the origins of chess can be traced back nearly 1,500 years in India, from which it spread. Joining me today is Jennifer Shahadi, a two-time U.S. women's chess champion. She has the title of Woman Grandmaster. She's author of her book, Chess Queens, the True Story of a Chess Champion and the Greatest Female Players of All Time. She's also the current Women's Program Director of the U.S. Chess Federation. We're also joined by some young female chess players from the area. Marissa Mesano is a sophomore at the Masterman School and founder of the Masterman School's Queens Chess Club. Ava Moore is a sophomore at Benjamin Franklin High School. She's a chess student at Philly ASAP, or After School Activities and Partnerships. And also Vanita Young. She's a professional chess player and a coach in the Philadelphia area. Miss Young is a chess instructor at Ad Prima Charter Schools and Philly ASAP, which is After School Activities and Partnerships. Welcome, everyone, to the program. Thank you. Thank you. All right. It's great to be in a room full of female chess players. Can I just say that? This is a very powerful moment. We're going to learn all about chess and women in chess. And first, I know a lot of people aren't familiar with the game um, because this game obviously is not a game for instant gratification, instant rewards, things of that nature. It's a time-consuming game that involves lots of thought, lots of strategy. Jennifer, can you talk about the object of the game and um, especially for those who've, who've never played? Well, the object of chess is checkmate, to trap your opponent's king. But it's also to have fun and to exercise your brain. And it's funny you say that it's not about instant gratification because while that definitely resonates with me, that one of the reasons chess is so popular now is because people want something that forces them to slow down. Mm. These are pieces on the board. They all have different movements. And as you said, the the goal is to trap the king. Yes. Um, I guess a myriad of strategies have to be used in order to do that. And you're playing an opponent who also is strategizing to do the same thing. Can you talk a little bit about the pieces, the movement, and why it takes so much strategy to get through a game? That's right. Every piece moves differently. And the most powerful piece is the queen, the chess queen, right? So that's the one that almost always does the checkmating. Mm -hmm. So the queen is like really core to the strategy of chess. 
And the pawns are very relevant too. There's eight of them. And when they get to the, the last rank, they become a queen. So that's a really core part of the strategy too. If you can't checkmate, you figure out how to make a queen and then you checkmate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's really interesting about the history of chess is that until 500 years ago, you, you mentioned that chess dates back 1,500 years ago. But uh, before... Uh, 1500 approximately, the queen was actually the weakest piece on the board. Oh, wow. So she could only move one square diagonally. So it took forever to checkmate. It took like hundreds of moves to checkmate. So they actually changed the movements of the pieces or just the queen? Well, the queen and the bishop. But the queen was the most dramatic change. So the queen went from the weakest piece to the strongest piece. Mm. And, you know, when they made that change, they first called it the mad woman's chess game. So the, the crazy queen was so powerful. So she had to be mad and crazy to be so powerful and make all those moves. Exactly. But uh-huh. it was obviously a better game because when you <laughs> give women more power. Thank you. <laughs> it will instantly make that sphere better. Mm-hmm. So the crazy woman was dropped and now it's chess Good. that we know of. Right. Awesome. Um, now, talk about how you got involved in chess. I know that your dad was a masterful chess player and probably taught you the game, right? That's right. He's a four-time PA state champion, and my brother was a fantastic player as well. He's actually more of a chess prodigy than me. He picked it up really fast, one of the youngest chess masters um, in the country. Uh, and we both actually went to Masterman. Oh, so wow. that's why it's so heartwarming Look to see Marissa here today. Wow, that's very cool. Now, let's talk about our young chess players that we have here. Let's talk about how long you've been playing chess and what got you interested in chess. Marissa, let's start with you. How long have you been playing? Um, I've been playing chess for nine years now. I started in first grade at school. It was really like a silly story because I was on vacation the summer before and they had one of those like giant chess sets. Yeah. And I was like, oh, dad, what's that? And he just was like, oh, yeah, that's chess. Like, I know how to play, but not really. So then I went back to school and I told my coach, oh, yeah, I know how to play chess on vacation. I learned my dad taught me, but he didn't really. But then she (laughs) let me join anyway. And Mm -hmm. I started playing since then. And I've been going to programs with ASAP. And yeah, that's interesting. Like, I learned how to play chess at one point, but I didn't follow through with it. I didn't think anything. Well, you know, I'll just keep playing. What kept your interest in chess from first grade? I honestly think it was the coach, Miss Farrell. She, oh. like, kept us engaged every week. I technically, like, wasn't supposed to be in chess club until third grade, but she made an exception for me. And, like, I guess me kind of feeling that, like, I wasn't supposed to be there and was, like, breaking the rules to be there, like, helped me stay there. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Awesome. Ava, what about you? When did you start? I started around fourth grade, maybe um, five, six, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, what got me into chess was actually, I want to say my brother, because my brother started three years before me. So he'd been playing for almost like a decade now. And I would have to go to chess tournaments with him because my mom would want me to stay close to him. Mm-hmm. And I was too young to go home by myself. So I will always go to like the chess tournaments at like the school district. And I would watch them play, and I was just always kind of fascinated in chess. And also, I did not like the fact that I would just sit in the background watching everyone get trophies. So I kind of started picking up on how the pieces work. Every time my brother had chess practice at our old school with Mr. Boy, I would watch them closely, like how each piece moves and like where it goes. And then I just started kind of moving the pieces on my own. And my coach realized that I kind of knew how to start playing chess. And what got me into it was when I think we was going to States. And I was like, I want to go. And mm-hmm. he let me go. Wow. Wow. 
These are great stories, and I think it's great that you guys uh, have kept your interest up in chess and continue to play. Again, you know, Jennifer, we talk about the instant gratification that we all want, whatever we do. (laughs) And then we just want those rewards as soon as possible. But it's great to see young people that are engaged in a game that takes thought and that takes strategy and it takes time to perfect also as well. Uh, Vanita, tell me more about ASAP. All right, so ASAP, um, After School Activities Partnerships, I actually started off in their tournaments. I'm not going to say how many years ago. It's a really long time ago, <laughs> but they've been doing this for a really long time. They actually provide tournament play to the uh, students of Philadelphia that normally wouldn't be able to play chess, and that's actually they're one of the main reasons where I'm at today. Providing those tournaments, uh, I'd say usually tournaments you have to travel a great distance to play. Whereas they made sure that it was, I believe when I first started, they had it at Community College of Philadelphia. So they had an mm-hmm. area where it was easy to get to. And they provided the boards so you didn't have to bring your own sets. And so over the years, they've progressed a little bit more. And uh, they've been getting more involved with the practice of things, not just the tournaments. So they'll have like summer camps. And so I'll do their all-girls chess camp. So I'm one of the instructors there. They'll provide coaches trainings for coaches that just started out playing and need the foundation to start their chess club. And when did you start playing chess? I started playing chess because I was in detention. At school? (laughs) Yes, I got in trouble and I was waiting for my assignment. Uh, Back then, our detentions, we had to clean the hallways or something. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the city year members came to me when I was sitting waiting. I believe the person who was doing the detention that day completely forgot that I was in the hallway waiting. So a uh, chess practice was going on in the library. She said, uh, Vanita, you want to learn how the pieces go? And I said, sure. I didn't tell her I was waiting for detention. And then I got in. She told me how to move the pieces. And what actually kept me there was boys. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I was a nerd. I was uh, 12. I was a nerd. Only boys that would probably show me some attention was the ones that were playing chess. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so... That's why I stayed. I was a horrible player. I didn't win a tournament until I was probably like a year and a half in. And uh, ever since then, something clicked, saw the board a little differently. I was like, okay, I can play this. I like this game. And I've just been hooked since. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Now, Jennifer, women may not dominate the game, but certainly women have been playing chess for centuries, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there have been so many incredible women in the history of chess. Uh, Yuta Pogar, who to me is the greatest of all time of any gender. She's the only woman ever to be in the top 10 players in the world. And she beat 11 world chess champions. Wow. That's incredible. Is she American? No, she's Hungarian. Hungarian, okay. Yeah, but of course she's traveled all over the world for chess. And there's also, actually, I was just in Paris a few weeks ago, and I met a Holocaust survivor who was a 1956 French women's chess champion. So just these stories of women who have used chess to become, you know, either great at the game or to just uh, have fantastic lives. You see women from the state of Georgia, um, from the country of Georgia, rather, who became the greatest female players in the world, first women to win the Grandmaster title, was from Georgia. And I also think even on the scale of college scholarships, I know Vanita got a college scholarship because of her chess skills. I'm sure that Marissa and Ava are going to have a leg off in their applications because of chess. And that really makes me feel proud and fantastic about 
the ways that you can become great at chess and then chess can also help you become great at whatever else you do. Uh, well, then let's talk about your love for the game, Ava. What do you love most about chess? What I love most about chess, I think I'll probably say the strategy. The strategy. Okay. Because okay. when I first started, I will say I wasn't really that founder of chess because I wasn't winning any games. When it was time to get awards, my name never got called. So I was just always wondering, like, what am I doing wrong? Like, how can I change? And I think it probably was like a year after, and I played the same person I played like a year before. And I don't know, I think like something, like as she said, something in my brain just clicked. Yeah. And I just saw like all these moves on the board. And I was like, wow, this is like really good right now. <laughs> and the boy that I was playing, he played like, I think like five years before me. So he was really good. And I just remember just kept on losing to him. And like, I finally beat him. Cause I like, I started to see all these different strategies on the board. Right. And I was like, checkmate. Look and at he that. looked just so surprised. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting um, when we're talking about the chess uh, and the strategy. I'm sure there are strategies in chess that you can apply to life. I mean, it's not just a game. There is really a way to try to trap your king, so to speak, right? Oh, absolutely. There are so many life lessons through chess. Yeah. I'd say two of the biggest ones for me is the first one I think is focus. Like chess really shows you that you need to pay attention, especially where we're in a world where we're constantly getting pinged and notified and our attention is being dispersed in so many different ways. Chess reminds you that if you can focus on one thing, that is a superpower because it's so hard to do right now. Yes, that's very true. That's very true. And Marissa, tell me about your love of the game. What do you love most about it? Honestly, I love all the friendships and people that mm -hmm. I get to meet through chess. With your girls club, I got Jennifer Shahadi. She ran a Zoom club over the pandemic where girls across the country could meet different female chess players okay. and like grandmasters and just really like inspirations to me. And that was really pivotal for me to get to expand my horizon in the game and see that like these are people that I can like aspire to be one day and then also like all the people that I get to meet at local tournaments like people like Ava and like the girls that I get to hang out with and spend time with at these like really really long like drawn out days at tournaments yeah, yeah. so let's talk a little bit more about competitions because I heard you guys are talking about states and nationals and different things competitions are coming up is this something that people have to prepare for Jennifer Oh, absolutely. The Nationals is the big one. I remember when I was a kid, Nationals was like everything. We would, you know, play the States, which is always before the Nationals. And the preparation that went into the Nationals, which is usually in like April or May, was always really intense. Mm -hmm. And so what I tell people as a coach myself and, you know, a player is right before a game, you want to be pretty relaxed. So you don't really want to study like right before a game. The night before, the week before, you want to do a lot of like quick drills, like just like almost like sprints. Um, and the months before, you want to make like major changes to your strategy and like really dig deep and kind of like deconstruct what you're good at and what you're bad at. Well, Vanita, what does it take to be a powerful chess player? I've noticed I play uh, how my personality is. I have ADHD, and so the funny thing is I got a little bit better with uh, things later on in life, but when I was younger, it wasn't taken care of. I was only good at math, and um, I wasn't good at, like, reading and writing and all that. And so from a young age, I've always noticed that I would kind of just 
be timid by things when everything's going well I would get kind of timid and like oh no things aren't supposed to be going this well I have to stop now so during a game whenever it doesn't matter if I'm behind in the game I'll just keep pushing and pushing and pushing to get up and then now that I'm looking at the board I'm like oh my god things are going well now I have to do something now I have to freeze up now I have to relax or something and then sometimes I'll lose that way because I didn't keep pushing forward after I got ahead mm-hmm. so as I've gotten older I've started accepting when things are going well and things don't always have to be going bad. And I've noticed my game has changed a little bit. You identified your weakness in the game and you're able to overcome it by knowing exactly what you're feeling in that moment. That's really part of strategy, I would say. And that's interesting that you were able to identify that and then make that tweak to fix it. I think it's an absolutely brilliant wow. um, observation by Vanita. And it's something I see a lot in girls and women and not only in chess. It's like this ability to realize that when you're crushing, you can enjoy the moment and you can push further. Mm. The imposter syndrome that a lot of women and girls yes. feel when they're actually succeeding and they're doing really well, I think can hold us back. And I've noticed this as a weakness in myself as well. Like I've won two U.S. Women's Championships, but in both cases, I actually clinched the title with mm. a round to go. And in both cases, I lost my last round. So I still won the title. Mm-hmm. But it was like, once I was already successful, I was like, okay, I can like relax now. You know, whereas really important life skill is to like, when you're getting that success to kind of revel it and see what you can get out of it. Right, right. Yeah, we tend to wait for the other shoe to drop. You know, I want to talk more about women in chess and the fact that we have young girls in the Philadelphia area that are playing chess. When you first started did you hear things like, oh, chess is for boys, chess isn't for girls? Were you ever discouraged from playing it at all by anyone? Um. Well, one time when I played in a tournament, this kid, I beat him and he like literally just refused. It's just common courtesy. You say like, checkmate, do you agree? And he was like, no. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, it's How do you checkmate. not agree? <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's on the board. And we had to call over a tournament director like, this kid, he would not accept it. And I was like, well, that's weird. Like, that never happened to me before. Mm-hmm. But I mean, afterwards, I was like in third grade, so I didn't really understand exactly that it was because I was a girl. But later, over reflection, I was like, oh, that was kind of weird. You know, like, I mean, it's not common, but it's not a one-time thing, I got guess. It, got it. It, it, it exists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Ava? For me, I would say they wouldn't really say anything to me. When it came to, like, tournaments, I would, like go to get my pairing so i'll walk up and the first first thought is like he don't have to say anything it's just the look that he gives off to me Mm -hmm. he already had a look like i'm about to be here and usually sometimes they sit near their friends you can't really sit anywhere they have you like different numbers so he would like look at his friend his friend look at him like oh you got this you got this Mm -hmm. and then i'll sit down what i usually like to do i like to ask him about this stuff like oh how long you've been playing what school you go to how old are you and then they asked me about me. I'd be like, oh, I've been playing for like six years. Then, they, then their like attitude like, changed. Oh, They'd oh, be like, okay. oh, okay. Be like, and then they look a little scared. And I'd be like, okay. Then we keep on playing. They probably, And I could see their facial expression change over time because why when I walk up, you had this face of, oh, I got this. Oh, she a girl. Like, you're losing to me now. Mm-hmm. You're judging my character based off my appearance. Like, you don't know how I am. You're just judging me because sometimes a rating, too, because my rating might be really low, but doesn't mean I'm not a good chess player. I might be a young lady, but that does not mean anything. I could be dominant in this field, too, just like you. That just shows that you have no respect for any lady here. 
And then you get beat and you're looking salty now. (laughs) (laughs) I love your attitude, Ava. I absolutely love that. And it brings to mind the point, Jennifer, that sexism exists everywhere. And of course, since this is a male-dominated game, it's here in chess as well. And along with that, some cases of sexual harassment. And if you could just talk a little bit about that and perhaps give some words of wisdom to Vanita and Ava as far as what to look out for and, you know, not to be intimidated. Well, I think that, yeah, there's unfortunately been a lot of uh, cases of sexual harassment, even sexual abuse and assault and chess. And, you know, I think that all the fault is in the abusers and their enablers. And so I, uh, I think we just have to really do what we can to make the community even better. I mean, one of the great things about chess, as Marissa pointed out earlier, is the the social aspects, like the parties, the travel. And when there are bad actors that threaten that, that turn it into from like a party into a nightmare, I think we just really need to root that out. And especially the adults and the men, they have to cut it out. Like if you hear somebody saying something, you know, just tell them, you know, that's not okay. Right. You know, because to me, it's the girls and women we need in the game. They're the ones who are making the game more equitable and more fun. Because right now we still only have like 15% female participation in chess. It's so yeah. low. Yeah. So every girl and woman who fights and shows up again and again, they're making the game better. Absolutely. Well, of course, the name of Jennifer's book is Chess Queens, the true story of a chess champion and the greatest female players of all time. Of course, get it wherever books are sold, of course, along with all of Jennifer Shahadi's former books on chess. And I know it's not just chess. You're into poker, too. So we had to come back and maybe visit and talk about poker. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So Jennifer Shahadi, Marissa Maisano, Vanita Young and Ava Moore. Lots of chess queens right here in the studio. Thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. The MLK House in Camden, where Dr. Martin Luther King lived as a student in the 1950s, recently suffered severe damage from a fire. However, Pastor Amir Khan, the owner and founder of the nonprofit New Beginning, has vowed not only to save the property, but to continue his plans to transform it from a simple two-story row home into a museum and social justice center. Sharaday Howard sat down with Pastor Khan to discuss what's next for the historic landmark. The MLK House in Camden, New Jersey is by all accounts a landmark in the civil rights movement. It's where Dr. Martin Luther King lived as a student from 1948 to 1951 and where King was most likely inspired to carry on his work as a civil rights leader. But recently, the two-story row home was severely damaged by a devastating fire. Amir Khan, the owner of the MLK House and founder of the nonprofit New Beginnings, has vowed not to only save the property, but to continue his plan to transform it into a museum and the MLK Social Justice Center. He says it's crucial to restore this landmark house to new glory. So we sat down with Pastor Khan to hear what's next. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Pastor Khan. Well, thank you so much and so glad to be here with you, Sharon. All right, Pastor, when you saw those flames, what went through your mind? Heart sank first. It was like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? And then the first reaction was pray that everybody was okay. And I knew that would be the heart of Martin, too. Martin would be, if he was here on this earth right now, forget the house, forget all that. 
is everybody okay? And thank God everybody's okay. Everybody got out safely. Red Cross is involved with them. A lot of donations are coming in to make sure that those families are taken care of. So you'd been doing work already to improve this house. How long had you been working on that? Well, we purchased the house about two years ago. So up until this time, the first step we did was we had to make the next step of putting it on the state and national register. So the Historical Preservation Office here in New Jersey has been working tremendously with us. Um, kudos to them. They've helped us. They walked us through. Um, we applied for a grant, and the grant we received about uh, six months ago was for $100,000. We would not have been in a position to fix up the house, at least to even shore it up, until some kind of funding came through. Well, guess what? The funding's coming through. It's called insurance. You know, when I saw it on the news and I saw the flames, I thought this thing was going to be flattened. But when I got there, I saw the four walls around. There was damage to the back wall. And uh, the roof, of course, caved in. But you know what? We had to do a lot of rehab on the house anyway. So you know what? Um, When the architect talked to us and said that the walls are still solid, it's still structurally sound, the uh, fire marshal came by and officials from Camden came by and they said they're not going to condemn it. They understand the historical significance of it. And their words were, if you guys have the intestinal fortitude, the money, the resilience, we're going to stand with you on it. So we're going to move forward and uh, looking forward to the center to open up in the next two years. So not only good news, but music to your ears. Absolutely. We purchased the house in 2021, so about two years ago. And obviously, because of the historical significance of Martin Luther King staying there, we we know that obviously Martin Luther King was there at Morehouse in uh, Atlanta. He was there with his best friend, Walter McCall. In 1948, they graduated. They came to Crozier Theological Seminary in Chester. Uh, while they were there at Chester, Chester was a primarily white school, so obviously he wanted to be around people that looked like him as well. So from 1948 to 1951, while they were at Crozier Theological Seminary, so it was at the time where they would just preach, they would go around, and on a Sunday, June 11th, 1950, it was at that time when they went to Mary's Cafe to get something to eat. And when they walked in, they sat down, the four of them, it was Walter McCall, Martin Luther King, and two young ladies, and when they sat down to eat, uh, they were refused service. Eventually, they demanded, listen, well, give us a ginger ale. Give us, you know, four rounds of ginger ale. And they said no. And they started using, you know, a certain language, of course, get the blanket blank out of here. Um, the owner pulled out a gun. He fired it in the air, um, said, I have killed for less, and kicked them out of there. And Prior to the gun coming out, it was actually what Martin referred to as his first sit-in, 1950, where he said, no, we're not going to leave. So this was a spark. This was inspiration for the rest of his calling. That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, at a Senate subcommittee years later, Mm -hmm. they asked the question to him, what sparked? What was the cause um, for this fire, excuse the pun, to walk down this road fighting against injustice? And he referred to Mary's Cafe... 1950, June 11th, while he was living in Camden. And when they were put out, they went to the police department. They filed a police report. Uh, The the gentleman that pulled out the gun, fired the gun in the air, he was found guilty. The charges were pressed against him. Now, remember, this is 1950. Two young black men from the South Mm -hmm. come up here filing charges. Mm -hmm. But what they did was, and this is Martin, he's so smart, they knew about a newly enacted law 
First time ever used in New Jersey. But this law was a national law that came about in 45, and it was um, put into as far as nationally in 1949, but the first time used was 1950 by Martin Luther King. He realized that at that time, he could take what he learned from Mahatma Gandhi, passiveness, being peaceful, nonviolent, along with the law, putting them together, and it works. As a matter of fact, the night they went to Mary's Cafe, they were on the front steps of the house, and the owner of the house said to them, listen, you guys are going to Mary's Cafe. Don't go there. He said, they don't allow us there. Just a few months before that, they went to a bowling alley in Camden. It was white only, and they were kicked out of there. Nothing materialized. So now Martin's now trying to push the law, push the law. Yeah. His exact quote, he, he used the quote in a paper years later. He said, you're telling me not to go there. That's why we should go there so we can go anywhere. What kind of support do you need from us and also from officials? You know, we started getting calls from all over. Individuals donating, volunteering. You know, there's a great scripture that says, what the enemy meant for evil and harm, God turns it around for your good. And here we are concerned on Sunday morning, 3, 4 o'clock, about a fire devastating this property but now, all of a sudden, you have the governor, you have grants, you have funders, you have donors. So you never know this thing, how the enemy tried to destroy this home. Mm-hmm. Yet I rise and still I stand. You know, there's a, I think her name is Sister Joan. She lives on the block. She's a block captain. And she's probably 85 years old, 86. And this broke my heart. When the day of the fire, we're there. And she was there and she's like in tears. And she said she wanted to stay alive until she saw that as a facility as the Martin Luther King Center for Social Justice. Now, what did you say to Miss Jones? How did you quell those fears, that sadness? I said, the dream is still alive. And I hugged her. I said, no, they haven't. It will happen, and you will be here. And I pointed to where she's going to be sitting. As you're going to be in the front row at the dedication, right here as we cut the ribbon, and you'll be one of the first to walk in. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. Be well.